0: So, I'm very excited to uh, welcome to the Two Minute Hate uh, Dr. Bennett, Extra Dead JCB on Twitter and Substack. Uh, Dr. Bennett, in addition to being very good at Twitter, uh, runs the exit group that I am a member of. I think I was on the the earlier side, like there from the beginning, Um, and it's turned into a really cool. you know, practical, entrepreneurially focused uh, group for people who are sort of planning how they might either expand their side hustle or get their side hustle to the point where it's their main gig, and um, you know they can be their own boss and have a little less exposure uh, to the types of events that are making life hard for for folks. So, uh, I'm really happy to have you. Your uh, you know your your Twitter and podcast profile are much larger than mine. So this is. This is a form of charity i don't know if you can uh deduct it from your religious obligations but you know (laughs) good to be here thanks yeah so i have like a little spiel uh i think you know that i want to uh, interrogate you about your strange religion yeah um you know i i thought i'd give you like my background with mormons because it's sort of interesting um in Uh the hometown where i grew up i think we had one mormon family And they were sort of conspicuous by, um, you know, one of the things I've always felt a little bashful about in America, especially when traveling abroad is that like, you can't really recognize Christians behaviorally. Uh, and maybe even particularly my group, like the Catholics, you know, no one would ever say like, Oh, that guy's drinking, that guy's swearing. Probably not a godly man. If anything, you'd be like, Oh, he's drunk. And he's swearing. He's probably Catholic. Um, (laughs) And so you, you know, there's not a lot of, um, you don't observe behavior, you know, someone might cross themselves, someone might say a prayer under their breath, but in terms of uh, sort of like morally regulated behavior, I think the first people I met uh, where I was like, oh, they're not doing something because they're religious were were Mormons and Muslims. And then later when I met evangelicals, you know, they too would have some sort of, uh, you know, things they didn't do. Maybe they didn't swear, maybe they didn't drink, whatever. And I always sort of admired that. And I thought like, huh, you know, probably if you take your religious religion seriously, someone should watch you go about your life and sort of know uh, that you are, are up to something. And so I was always impressed by this uh, Mormon family in our hometown. They were just very, um, very proper, very sort of conspicuously friendly, like, and I never knew if this was uh, something facilitated by the church or not, but. The Mormon church nearby, which wasn't in our town, had a basketball court inside, and they were very, um, I don't know what the word is, but they were very inviting in terms of saying like, hey, kids who want to do pickup games, come play at the temple. There's not going to, you know, you're not going to get a pamphlet about the LDS. You're just going to come play. So there was sort of like, it just always seemed like there was uh, a lot of intentionality to the vibes they were putting out into the world. And I thought like, well, this is this is admirable and this is something I, you know, as a Catholic, I'd like to be like that and sort of wish Catholics were more like that. And then, you know, we've both worked sort of adjacent or in the national security space where Mormons are sort of, uh, I guess, overrepresented in part because the mission ends up giving people a lot of interesting and rare language skills. And also I've heard another part of it is Mormons don't take on debt, which is something, uh certain intelligence agencies frown upon. And so there's a lot of Mormons in national security, which is like, it definitely impacts the vibe uh, in like a good way. I think that there's also like a little bit, and you're you're not a part of this at all, so I'd be interested to get your thoughts, but there is a bit of like a, at least in DC, like a neocon Mormon thing. Uh, and you know, back in the day, I used to uh, work a little bit with Evan McMullen when he was still in the house. And so... He he, actually, like, his network on the Hill was never Mormon-centric, but, you know, through knowing him a little bit, I was very exposed to, like, the uh, nascent Mormons against Trump uh, community, which I think is like a D.C. thing, but maybe also a, a Romney thing at certain points. So, you know, this is all, like, mixed, but it's just to say I think I've always had a pretty positive uh, impression of the religion, but known very little about it. So that's why... Uh, I'm gonna interrogate you, but I, I think my thoughts were somewhat summed up by uh, you know seasonal click farmer on Twitter. It's that yeah. You know that account? So he he tweeted something where he's like, people are constantly observing that they sort of like how Mormons behave, and then constantly dunking on their theology. <laughs> right. And refuse to make any connection between the two things, and I would <laughs> I agree with that observation. And I will say, at least for me, this is how I try to be in the world where like. And this is sort of the spirit of this conversation that I think, Okay, well, if a group of people uh, are behaving in a way that I consider admirable and not just admirable, but sort of admirable in distinction to the broader society, then like I should uh, be open about what might be uh, good or, you know, in in the most material terms, maybe just like adaptive or, you know, what has utility in their their beliefs?
1: So uh, I think theology in that context is used maybe a little bit too broadly, because I I find there's actually almost zero curiosity about our actual theology. Uh, They dunk on historiography. They Mm -hmm. dunk on like, uh, it's basically just that that we're credulous about truth claims. It it, it has nothing to do with like soteriology or, or like like any any like questions of like how the cosmos operates. It's all about like you think that there was a gold record buried and like that the Indians are Jews and and you get to go to space when you die. Like like it's and it's it's very like it's a it's a caricature of of these, like very concrete truth claims, it's not really about the theology at all. And the theology, to me, is what's interesting about it. And so, like, when people want to argue about the, like, or, or they want to argue about like magic underwear or polygamy or something, and it's like, I, I think I think people interpret that as like people taking offense and therefore not wanting to talk about it. When really, what it is is like. You're really just trying to you're really just trying to be funny, but I've heard all these jokes. Like like
0: Right. And I think I think <laughs> mocking curiosity and sincere curiosity are very easy to discern, but people right. act like they're being convincing. You know, I would see this <laughs> I would see this sometimes in the Middle East, even when like super libs would be like, So cousin marriage, like walk me through it. I'd be like, no one in this room like thinks you uh <laughs> you know have any real open-mindedness <laughs> to this I don't know if it's like similar to that but uh, no totally absolutely it is <laughs> yeah so I think um I want to get into like theological questions but one thing I also wanted to say is did you ever watch the documentaries on Scientology? Like Going Clear or uh No uh uh-uh. uh so they're interesting because I think like, you know, they're basically like takedowns of the Church of Scientology. Sure. And um, I participated in this thing uh, in D.C. called like the International Religious Freedom Roundtable, which, uh, you know, lots of religious groups go and attend it. And the Scientologists are there Mm -hmm. and the Scientologist reps are really interesting. And like their perspective is sort of like, well, now I'm going to give my perspective, but this is partly informed by them. But they basically say like, the early stages of Scientology shows all the qualities of every religion. And, like, secular society is in this weird place where it's, like, we don't like people who punish apostates. We don't like magical thinking. But if your punishment of apostates or magical thinking is a 1,000 years old uh, or more, sure. like, you're grandfathered in. But if you're new, like, <laughs> our contempt for you is totally un, uh, you know, unrestrained. And I think, like... My frustration with some other Christians, and, and maybe this is even more of a problem for Catholics than evangelicals, is like, I think some Catholics do think they've made a sort of workable piece with the modern world and, like, empiricism, where they're sort of like, well, our truth claims can't be invalidated because, like, the archaeology is gone. So we, like, get a pass. But if anyone's saying anything miraculous happened in the last 200 years, like, that's absurd.
1: And That's I kind of just,
0: yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of like, because <laughs> my position on it is like, look, they can carbon date the Shroud of Turin as many times as they want. I don't care. Like, I'm not a materialist. Like, if you believe right. in God, then, like, he can mess with atoms. So, like, so I, I think that, I guess uh, what the point I'm trying to make is, I think you can see the sort of secularization of society at work in that even a lot of people who belong to older faiths will adopt this secular frame if a religion is recent and be like because your documents and artifacts can actually be scrutinized in a laboratory like we think you're kind of clowns but it's just luck and time that means our tradition can't be interrogated in that way
1: no and it's very much like i think it is almost literally like sometime in the 16 or 1700s we all made a pact that we weren't gonna treat each other's truth claims as silly because we were killing each other by the truckload over it, yeah. and and we were adopting this enlightenment frame about reality, um, but it was pretty dangerous to take that backwards. So it's sort of like we're gonna snap the line there, and we get to be, and 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 uh, I, I think most materialists, most most like honest actual uh not uh not pretending to be religious materialists uh that's one of the ways they kind of dunk on religious people is is like you're 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 clearly in this real world where everybody works day to day you've decided to play the enlightenment game the materialist game clearly right and um and yeah I do think it's an example of that i i, I think uh the the and, and I mean, I, yeah, you, what, it, what it comes down to is if you believe in the miraculous, if you believe that God can mess with atoms, then, yeah, so many questions just become completely intractable to certain types of analysis that, that most people consider to be really, really important ways right. of knowing things. Yeah, so you have to find another no, way.
0: I, I think I'm always frustrated that, like, I understand the ways in which my view is sort of untenable. Like, like I think our society really prepares people well with rhetoric of like, if you engage in magical thinking, here's the danger. But I think like most people have no um, familiarity with like really good historical arguments about the limits of rationality and empiricism. You know, like if you say to people sort of like, okay, well, like in the future there's going to be, uh, an infallible contraceptive that just means like incest isn't actually dangerous. What do you want to do about it? And people will just be like, <laughs> "And you know, so I do think like we still live in a world with inherited moral claims. Oh, totally. That, that have magical origins that people are comfortable not interrogating. And again, you get like, you know, there will always be like the odd philosophy professor who really has thought this through. And it's like, yeah, obviously incest is fine and then uh that's when i'm like yeah okay like that's sort of you know that's where i assume we're headed but that's that's a little bit of a no a totally separate, it is absolutely yeah. it is
1: if people cannot uh, an individual can live with cognitive dissonance for their entire life a society will work through those 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 dissonances if if uh if the whole society believes things for no reason that are out of harmony with that society's actual values and actual philosophical premises um, even if it's like well i mean you know in the case of in the case of sexual mores if it's a 5% of the population that like really loudly would like to do the thing they're going to keep hammering at that door until the door opens like that's just it's there's there's entropy there right and uh, yes, you, yeah, absolutely. Basically, we're 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 plumbing this, the depths of where the materialist worldview actually leads, and what it actually cashes out in terms of what we should do as human beings. And uh, most people don't love what they see, but that's sort of you. You could almost characterize the division between the two sort of culture war factions that way. Is like people who are like, um this dissonance means that we need to change our values and accept the materialist implications of, 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 well, the, the the implications of materialism for our values, which is the sort of progressive faction. Like let's go ahead and just admit that um, all kinds of sexual and other uh, 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 peccadilloes are fine. And the other side of the faction, uh, the other, the other faction in that struggle is like, uh, and this is this is part of our weakness, right? Is like we've got all kinds of different arguments and all kinds of different backgrounds that we come from to say there should be these these non-materialist rules. And we don't agree, but we're like, we're all seeing where that thing's headed. And we're all like, no, this proves materialism wrong, almost like ipso facto, because it's so just viscerally disgusting.
0: Right, and I think the the tragedy or what feels tragic to me is like, we're in this middle point, whereas I, I feel like even a lot of secular people, a lot of progressive people have a sense that like uh, a sort of moral foundation is being removed and bad things are happening, but they don't accept our explanation. So they're like, we need to watch it go a little further before we're gonna you know sort of uh, give your arguments credence. And it's like, well, uh, your kids are going to have a different threshold than you. And on exactly. the wheel of time, we'll move. Um, but it's, <laughs> you know, it, it, so that's that's scary. But I think, you know, of all people, Ben Shapiro said something that uh, really stuck with me, which is he said that an individual atheist can be a moral person, but an atheist society cannot be a moral society. Yeah. I think that, that really helped me clarify some things because I had a lot of, Individual atheists in my life who were among the best people I knew and who I felt in some sense were, you know, more Christian than than some people who believed. And I was struggling with that. And then when I heard that phrase, I was like, oh, OK, this this makes sense. And, you know, Steve Saylor, the uh, the Twitter goat, Steve Saylor, has been on uh, a rampage with these recent shootings where he just says, like, and I think this is totally true and people hate it. But he says people need to believe that they might go to hell. Uh, and I think that's a hundred percent true. And, um, I feel it modify my own behavior in a positive way. And, you know, I, I say that to some friends and they're like, so repulsed by it. Like, oh, you need, you need like a punishing daddy. Like, why don't, (laughs) why don't you just like get a boyfriend and work your shit out? I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think it's the same. I don't think it's the same impulse, but, uh, you know, it's, it's very, it's very, depressing to me that that people, because I remember, I, I wonder if you had this experience. I feel like in the Middle East, you know, there would sometimes be these situations where like modernity had created gender non-segregation in a very specific localized environment. Like maybe there was a beach that was for tourists and you'd see like Arab men there who were maybe working there or like they weren't visiting who were clearly like visibly struggling with horniness. <laughs> And, you know, maybe they wanted to, like, (laughs) stare at a woman or, like, grope a woman. And, like, the sort of self-talk they'd give themselves was about God. Like, they'd be like, you're not supposed to do that. Like, don't do that. It's not allowed. And so it's like their script was just explicitly, like, I have this impulse. God would prefer I not do it. And I'm sort of offended by the idea that we have a society where people are just like, oh, we're beyond that. It's like nobody's beyond that. Uh, you need, you know, I don't know. I, I'm sure you see what I'm getting at, but it's like, that strikes me as very important. And to think you can dispense with it is super arrogant. Um, and dangerous. yeah,
1: well, I, okay. So I actually have been chewing on this question a lot because, um, I think one of the respects in which, and this, this maybe I don't know if you want to segue here, but this is, uh, as far as um, our our doctrine, what we believe in. I do think that we have a different perspective from most Christian faiths with respect to the body. And um, the idea that essentially the body is just supposed to be like resisted full stop and 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 um like the flesh being being hostile to to god's will full stop right and and you maybe well this is a good maybe question to ask you like to me as i understand it from the outside i am thinking like the way that i understand the creedal view of sex is that it's sort of not great, but like there's sort of allowances for it. Um, and and like and it's definitely like you should definitely get married if you're going to do it. Um, but it's like celibacy really would be ideal if you could just do that. But since you maybe can't, like you should definitely get married and and like channel that impulse productively. But if you could just avoid it, that would be option like 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 a plan a
0: right i I think if you like asked a bishop or the pope like is marital sex like beautiful or is it and good or just the least bad uh, indulgence they would probably try to give you the beautiful and good answer but i certainly think the idea that nuns and monks and people who fully abstain are the most holy people Right. Uh, Sends. uh, You know, I've heard some European Catholics too comment that they think Protestants have a much bigger problem with the body and like affection than Catholics. And I was sort of interested to hear that. Empirically, empirically, that seems to be the case. Yeah, definitely. Like in European cultures, there seems to be like less weirdness. Like I, I always get affronted when there'll be some video of like Joe Biden. I don't know, like Patting Bernie on the back and people will be like, look at this freak. I'll be like, what's, what's wrong with you guys? Like they're, they're buddies. Like he can touch him. But I I do think there is some, some body fear in Catholicism. And I also think like Catholics are really, especially right now, like on the right Catholics are really, uh, into like an anti-gnosticism thing, you know, describing like transhumanism and transgenderism as a Gnostic heresy. But I do think we have to concede that, like, if you view all bodily impulses as sinful in origin, you are, like, opening the door to Gnosticism to some degree. Because it's like, then there is a sort of spiritual war between, like, the soul or the consciousness and the flesh. And even though uh, the church would never say that, that, like, you're at war with your body, that seems to be the implication of... Viewing all of these, uh, what we might you know in modernity call like innate biological drives as like things you have to grapple with, I, I think that can that can lead to to a, a gnostic frame. So yeah, I don't I don't know exactly what to do with that as a Catholic, but yeah, I, I think one thing I wanted to to ask to to frame the conversation and that your segue helps is like, do you think that the LDS Church in its doctrine does it change previous uh, Christian doctrine or is it just additive if that question makes sense like is it taking? oh yeah
1: yeah no, it's absolutely not just additive um, mm-hmm. there's there's definitely I mean, well so basically the to the extent so I'll say this like um, there is a strain a, a pretty deep emotional strain of of the church that's like, whenever I hear theology, I reach for my revolver. Like, um, (laughs) (laughs) like we don't have catechesis. We don't have like, um, a list of a list of official Mormon things to believe. Uh, so
0: you're less autistic than Catholicism. You're telling me,
1: I mean, I, I think, I think we, we are like pretty hard on the like far end of that spectrum from like most organized religions. Um, which is not to say that there's not, like, true and false. Like, you could definitely, like, uh, if you were to ask an apostle, like, hey, uh, is there, what, like, what is the truth about X or Y doctrine? They would tell you the answer. But they're not going to put it all in one place and be like, these are the list of things you must believe. It's And it's partly because it's so dependent on... Uh, our, our theory of how you obtain spiritual truth is very much like you have to get it from God. And so kind of what will happen is if somebody says, uh, you know, God told me that gay marriage is fine. Um, our response to that is sort of like, we're not going to argue about that. That's not what God's telling me. Double check. Like, like, (laughs) you know, like it's not, um, I I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is we don't just get to say like, well, but the book says, Mm -hmm. because that's not how it works. It's more like God has to talk to you. And if you get, if you get an answer totally different than me, then like you could be lying I could be wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. You could be wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like, like uh, a big part of the, the reason that like scholasticism developed in the medieval church was to resolve this kind of like, basically the idea was that personal revelation was not reliable. um, Right. As a, as a way of uniting people. And um and and that's where i think the autism quote unquote comes from is like well we need to agree we need to get to the truth so instead of uh this this personal revelation which people, which is internal it's subjective people can lie about it um we're going to logically articulate everything out as far as we can and um that that's like the essence of theology, right? Is we're going to think and think and think and, and and logically go from the premises that we have, which are admittedly pre-rational, but as like as soon as we can, we're going to jump off from the pre-rational space to the rational space, and uh, that whole frame basically we reject that, and mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because I, I I would argue that one of the um, Yeah. Miraculous is a fair word. One of the miraculous things about the church is, is how, um, how doctrinally unified it has been given that orientation. Um, I mean, what essentially happens is it'll, it'll sort of occasionally throw off pseudopods of people Mm -hmm. who are like, well, God told me this. And then they'll go off into the woods and be swingers or whatever they're going to be. And, um, but they don't get very far. And, and, and I sort of, uh, there's, sort of a, a, a collection of those, uh, cast offs in the mountain West and, and even to some extent in, uh,
0: in the, the, the center of the country. But, um, this is in, this is very fascinating and counterintuitive, because if someone had asked me in my ignorance, how is it that Mormons, uh, members of, of the LDS faith sort of are more visibly like morally chaste in a number of ways than other Christians, I would have assumed, like, well, they must have more rules and more enforcement mechanisms. And you're sort of telling me the opposite, which has interesting uh because because I would even say for Catholics, it's like we're the exact inverse, where it's like, you want an argument over random, like theological finer points. Oh, go to Catholics, will have that with you for days. But then if you zoom out and are like, are either of you following your interpretation of this rule? Be like, oh no, neither of us do. Um, so it's it's very uh, interesting to me.
1: Well, I, I yeah, and, and I don't have like a great answer for like exactly why that is the case. Um, I, I think a little bit, like maybe about okay. So well, let me let me backtrack to um, our, our sort of theory of, of of the history of Christianity, which I think explains a lot of the differences. Okay. Basically, what we believe is that there have always been prophets who have always taught the gospel. So like, or to whatever extent that people were ready for it. And, and there are cases where the people weren't ready for it. And so like a preparatory gospel was taught. Um, like, essentially, Moses goes up with the gospel on the tablets. He sees the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. He smashes the tablets and he goes back and gets the Decalogue. And uh, like you're not ready for that one, let's go simpler. And um, essentially, the law of Moses being, you know, our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. But but I think a lot of times the way that's characterized in mainstream Christianity is like Moses maybe was not clued in, like mm-hmm. like uh, it's 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 our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ in this like historical sweep sense of like humanity being, but, but our, our take on that is like, no, Moses was a Christian, you know, pastor Jim burying the, um, Mm -hmm. the King James version. Um, Moses was a Christian. Adam was a Christian. Elijah was a Christian. And to whatever extent there's two, there's two kind of variables at play. Like were the people ready to receive the fullness of the gospel? And to what extent did they, you know, and then to what extent was the record kept faithfully? And that mm-hmm. sort of defines how Christian do they look in hindsight.
0: Yeah. This is very evocative because if you've ever been a teacher, I think it's a universal experience that sometimes you walk into class with the curriculum, you look at what you're supposed to teach that day, and you look at the kids and you're like, I'm gonna cut out items two through six. I'm just gonna go <laughs> straight to seven. That seems like that's what the kids can handle.
1: Right. You know, so
0: that's that's believable in a in a certain way. But sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, so so uh essentially it's always been the one thing to whatever extent it was receivable and apostasy and restoration have been just sort of the rhythm of human experience since forever hard times strong men etc and um and it's called i mean we call it I, i don't know if other faiths call it the pride cycle we call it the pride cycle but um so the, the story of Christ is essentially the, well, the, the, the husbandman in the vineyard, right? He tells the parable. Uh, I'll send you a servant to, to tell you what to do. And they beat that guy and sent him away. And then he says, well, I'll send my son. And then they kill the son because he's the heir and they want to take over the kingdom. Right? And our our theory, basically, or, or theory is the wrong word, but our model for how that uh, transpired was that Christ was, was murdered. Uh, they, they warned about an apostasy of falling away. The apostles preached the gospel, but were eventually rejected and murdered. And by virtue of the, the, all of the messengers being rejected, it's not like, you know, one one uh, objection that I occasionally hear to this is like, well, but God could just send more. Like God could, why wouldn't he just but the point is that they rejected it. The 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 act of murdering the apostles was an act of rejecting the the brightest and clearest light that they could possibly reject, being primarily Christ himself and then the apostles. Um God in the flesh. They saw him, they said, that's not what we want. And uh, so that act of rejection, there's sort of two strains operating simultaneously. One of which is, it's the most, it's it's just the blackest betrayal possible. But these teachings are, are held onto. They're kept by some, by a few. And that that the brightness of that light sustained essentially Christendom for two thousand years. And so we we sort of hold these two ideas in our heads simultaneously that like the apostate churches are representative of that betrayal, right? But they are also stewards of that light. And that light is what sort of sustained, what 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 created the society that we have today and made it beautiful. And so- Yeah, that,
0: there's a certain metaphor there. And I know you guys use the word Gentiles, but like there's a certain metaphor there for how certain Catholics will view Jews where like there is some admonition against behavior, certainly, especially behind closed doors. But then there's this other part that's like, but they're a very important- part of this story and in getting Christian knowledge sort of to where it was and, and producing, you know, the prophetic lineages. So there's like a difficult, uh, it sounds similar in that, like, if someone asked me, and I don't think I'm just trying to be like a modern uh, squish. If someone asked, like, you know, what is the, the real status of, of Jews in the eyes of Catholics? I would be like, well, it's extremely complicated. It It's, sounds- it's almost,
1: it's almost identical and mm-hmm. and as okay. a matter of fact i think we would view if you, if you were to dig into it with a member of the church they would view Jews the same way it's it's uh clearly important and and you know important in the sense that everybody's important and then also because they have this covenant relationship um and then also like there's uh, this maybe goes into a topic that we that we discuss a lot in these kind of arguments is is the idea of cursing the idea that a people can be cursed because of, of ancestral uh, things that happen. And I think that the way that cashes out uh, in, in general, but, but, but also in this case, is the false beliefs and the false values that, that lead them to make bad decisions that make them unhappy and, and that hurt other people that's essentially how the curse uh, is enacted in the world. And, and the, the moment that they repent of those things and turn around, they they're redeemed. So it's not like this uh, it's not like the stain that won't wash out. You know what I mean? It's, it's more just the inertia of the fact that if you were raised a certain way, you have a uphill climb. Right. And there's is, like
0: a certain, yeah. you know, there are like uh secular autists, racists who would, describe this civilizationally as just saying like there are uh, more or less optimized heuristics that different civilizations give their people for, yeah. for operating in the world and thriving. And but, but going back to this,
1: this, this issue of like the history of, of Christianity, it's, it's like the two big, th- this, and this is sort of um, not everybody would talk this way. This is how I've worked it out in my head the two big issues that I see with the apostasy, uh, meaning that after the death of the apostles, the church being sort of in the woods and convening councils to try to figure things out. Like to us, the fact that you're convening councils to figure things out, that's like, uh, prima facie, you're lost. Like Mm -hmm. God is not giving you the answers. Therefore you are arguing. And, um, basically there there was how do we reconcile this to plato like like how do we which i think is where the 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 trinity comes from in in my view it's it's well there's jesus and there's the father um but there's only one god and there's this sort of uh this this hellenistic like everything must ascend to a point to a single one thing, but the scriptures don't read like that. So how do we fit those together? And, and basically our take on that is like pretty much, um, Plato's just wrong and shouldn't be, you shouldn't be trying to conform the gospel to Plato. And, um, and I think a lot. Right. Of their... I'm not an expert
0: on this, but I've I've heard that people describe Saint Augustine as like a uh, reconciliation of certain Hellenistic themes that were still persistent in in Western civilization with Christianity. And I think this is not explicit doctrine, but the the implication that I think many uh, Catholics and Christians hold unconsciously is that there was sort of pre Christian uh knowledge that was divine in origin partially right. understood in Hellenistic civilization and that's why it's important to try and reconcile uh Jerusalem and Athens or whatever. Right,
1: right, exactly. And 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 we just kind of don't. So so it, it's uh and I think that the that man's to...
0: BTFO'd by, <laughs> by the by the LDS. <laughs>
1: And that's, that's, I mean, essentially, uh, Owen, Owen Cyclops, I don't know if you've been watching his sort of journey right now, but, but, um, one of the things that he's sort of chewing on, and I feel like I can say this publicly because he's doing it publicly is he's chewing on like, Oh, what if I just didn't try to square all those circles? Like what, like, what if I just went with the most straightforward reading of this? And, um, to me, that's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's the right course. That's what we should do. And, and I think, um, it definitely influences, I think the effort, basically I see revelation as essential. And so when revelation was withdrawn and everybody started, not only, not only, uh, uh, trying to figure things out in the absence of revelation by, by rational argument and debate, but also denying the possibility of revelation saying that like, well, God snapped the line with the apostles. That's it. There's no more. God's not talking or he's not talking in that way. He's not talking. He's he said all the big things that he needs to say. And like, he might help you find your car keys, but he's not going to, there's not going to be any, any new revelation. General revelation to the church, the body of Christ. And because of that, I see I see the, the voyage to rationalism and materialism as almost inevitable. Because everything about your worldview, everything about what matters. You rush to put it into this rationalist frame as quickly as you can, and they didn't call it a rationalist frame at the time, but it was like, let's do something we can argue about. Let's talk about something where um, it's not subjective. Yeah, you there's and I can like both hints look at of the it.
0: Enlightenment in it. It's like logical rhetoric or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, and to me, to me, there's no, there's no real daylight between the the councils and scholasticism and the enlightenment. Like I I see, I see the one as the inevitable
0: blossoming of the other. Right. Well, I hope this isn't heretical, but I would say that like the endless sort of logical argumentation that Catholic thinkers engage in and like the intellectual tradition we have, like I find it fascinating, but I don't view it as, um, a way of actually resolving things like it, like it does impart wisdom to me, but I don't think like uh, I'll read all of Augustine and all of Aquinas. And then the questions that I currently can't answer, I'll answer. I'll be like, no, I'll be, I'll be aided in my thought process. But like, that's not a resolvable intellectual, like, like Like it has some worth that I'm struggling to define. But for me, it's like, There are irresolvable questions. And maybe I'm out of step with with the church in saying that, but I don't know. To me that
1: Yeah, I I think I think the way that revelation has has worked in my life, just from what I observe, is that God will not often He will not often tell me something um, well, let me, let me, put it this way. I think, I think that when, when, when Christ says, uh, my sheep are mine and they hear my voice, I interpret that pretty literally in the sense that like, I'm kind of a sheep. Like does, does a sheep know exactly what the shepherd's talking about? No. Can the shepherd tell if the shepherd, if can the sheep tell if the shepherd's like upset or calm, or go this way, go that, like very simple instructions, yes. And I think that because because revelation, because spiritual insight is happening inside your mind with all your other thoughts, discernment is easiest when it's most simple. Like straightforward moral questions, what's the right thing to do in this situation? Should I, shouldn't I? It's way easier for me to receive revelation than, you know, if I'm trying to uh, do something really cognitively complex. And, and I, so I think the value of that kind of thinking, like, to be clear, we're definitely pro, like, thinking through the scriptures, pondering what they mean, making connections. I mean, I, I, have, a, I have a study journal that's full of that kind of thing. Um, but it's more like, it's more like an offering that you present to the Lord and you say, is this it? Rather yeah. than like, I'm going to just independently figure it out.
0: I know that for me, like, and I, I want to be modest about any implication that like, you know, God has chosen me for anything or whatever, but like, I've always had an intuition about right and wrong and sin that I don't think can be fully explained by my subjective life and the influences around me. Like, yeah, I've I've had sort of hairs on my neck stand up about certain activities that no one really ever propagandized me against. I was just like, there's something in me saying that this is this is bad, and I do think that uh, coming back to the church and like sort of getting my life in order in certain ways was about in many ways, listening to that voice. And yeah. it's like, I do feel very alienated. Like sometimes I will try to talk to people and I'll be like, surely you've had a moment where like, you just knew what you were doing was like, let's not use the word God. Cause you know, theoretical person here doesn't like it, but like you knew that what you were doing was like out of accord with the universe. You knew that you could have done otherwise. And you proceeded anyway. And that was like a feeling. And some people literally will just be like, no, I don't know what you're describing. And so then I'm sort of left being like, man, I don't know. Like, maybe I am uh, experiencing life. I mean, the easy thing to say would be like they're experiencing some sort of denial. Like, that's my guess is that uh, that actually this kind of moral intuition is pretty prevalent, but that a lot of people use a lot of energy dismissing it uh
1: that yes that that would be my uh, so so we believe in the light of christ which is essentially that's essentially jiminy cricket that's your that's your conscience and um the light of christ is the that is the infallible mechanism by which you discern truth and um that you you read the scriptures in that light you pay attention to impressions that come from that part of you and and essentially what you discover i've told people to do this and i've and i've this is how my journey looked and so this is all i know to tell people to do i started to pay attention to that voice and i said what if i what if i just assume that that's god talking to me what if i treat that like it's god and i try really hard to listen to it i i and listen not listen to it just in the sense of like do what it says but like really try to understand exactly what i'm being told to do really try to understand the implications and and then I will go and try to execute and then I will try to pay attention to what happened. Like, and, and, what I have found is that like, a, that voice has virtues that I don't have. It cares about people I don't care about it. It wants things I don't want. And then when I act on it, things go right in ways that I could never have rationally connected the dots.
0: Well, right. One thing that's been sort of frightening for me is like, I think listening to that voice has made my life better. And in my cosmology, that's not necessarily supposed to be part of the deal. Like I have to remind myself, like I could be Job if God wants, you know, like I have to, yeah. I have to do this stuff. I can't get used to this because there's been a very, uh, and I'm very grateful for this, but there's been a very one-to-one of like, every time I've sort of been like, no, let's Let's do the the more righteous thing. I have been rewarded not only with uh, a sense of like inner peace and calm, but like my material conditions have gotten better. And I'm trying to be very vigilant about being like, that is not promised to you. Like great no, that it's right. happening, but that's you know Right. And and
1: and you know, to, to, to be clear, when I say that things have gone right in ways I couldn't anticipate, often they get they can, they can get harder materially, but they get better in some other way and and I think I think sometimes people get really wrapped around the axle with job because I, I think I think the Lord intended for job to be understood as an edge case, like, sure, this is not my default mode of interacting with human beings, like
0: no, sure. <laughs> But I'm like, I'm a little arrogant. But you always arrogant. could be, right? I'm a little arrogant about my own capacity for suffering, which is probably a Catholic thing. But so, like, I, <laughs> there's a little arrogance, too, where it's like, but if there was going to be a modern Job, probably, you'd probably ask me, right? Because, like, I could I could <laughs> handle it. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. It's uh,
1: Well, maybe that's the kind of talk that will
0: get you there. <laughs> right? No, I know. This is why, you know, I have to be vigilant at every corner. Some of my instincts are maybe uh, hubristic or something, but... Yeah, I don't know. There is like um, there's a particular like Catholic relationship with suffering that I think like I think there's real Christian truth in it. And I think it is always on the border of you becoming sort of like a like, uh, you know, nihilist, miserable, like self-flagellated. Like it's a it's an important but dangerous impulse and one I have to uh, sort of uh, like I can I can sort of like at times in my life, like find myself in the ruins of my own making and be like, of course I am righteous. Like let the punishments fall. It's like, no, you're just being a dumbass, And like, you know, you can can be more responsible and productive in your life. There's a,
1: there's a, there's a desire to transmute like your acknowledgement of your punishment into righteousness. Like, like, ah, I see so clearly. And I do that too. That's not, I don't think it's a Catholic thing. You, you, uh, you screw up, you get hammered and then like the very fat, fe- like the, the remembrance of God and the recognition of your, uh, position before him, uh, in that moment feels like, ah, now I get it. But it's like, no, you're, you're, you're at the, you're at the bottom. Like, that's not, that's not getting it. Getting it is when you do the right thing and you go the right place.
0: Like, <laughs> right. No part of it, it. Part of it is maybe Catholic, but part of it is just Evan too. Because I think my self understanding as a little kid, you know, the the suburb I grew up in was was pretty nice. And uh, mm-hmm. after my uh, father died, and I think there was truth in this, but I like really cultivated an attitude of like these people live Nerf ball life, and like my uh... my family was playing with live rounds. And like I think, right. I think I was right that like at a very young age, I had encountered something real and profound that a lot of people, even adults around me, maybe had not. But I also think yeah. you can go, you can go way too far with that, and it's a dangerous. Uh, it, it can be a dangerous self-conception because then you're you're maybe looking for for new ways to grieve or experience loss or suffer, and you know that's not. You don't want to be like mired in that.
1: I, yeah, I think I think you, you. I think there's a difference between viewing. I, so viewing suffering as pedagogical is super valuable um, because your 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 goal in that case is I'm not going to flee from the suffering, I'm going to be present with it. I'm going to try to learn from it, and then I'm going to get better. But I think suffering maybe as an act of worship that can be a little bit that can go awry because then you're like, the more I suffer, the better. And I like, uh, you know, God, God talks about like, what what do I, I, w- I will have obedience and not sacrifice. Like, he's like, why do I want you to kill your goats? Like, I don't, I don't care if you don't have goats. I, you having goats is fine. That's not the point. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I think, um, so, and there's there, there's a balance to be struck, right, between between the prosperity gospel and like God wants me in a hair shirt all the time, right. and and one of the biggest, I, I, it's not necessarily the biggest difference because like monasticism has taken a a, a a different role I think in the church than maybe it used to or smaller role, but it's a really evocative difference between us and other Christian traditions is like there's really no place for monasticism in our thing Mm -hmm. because we don't acknowledge withdrawal from the world as a positive thing. Mm -hmm. And we don't acknowledge like, like asceticism for its own sake as a positive thing. It's more like, it's more like, productively directing the energy and the same thing maybe applies to sex like like it's not about it's it's evil and you know don't give into it unless you have to and then give into it in marriage it's like this is a really uh unruly beast but that beast is supposed to take you somewhere and so you just have to Get on top, like get in the, get in the driver's seat of that beast and put take it where it's supposed to go.
0: Well, right. I mean, maybe this, this is an observation that's like meaningful about our culture, but it's like, I think all of us could probably recognize the difference pretty easily between like healthful and pathological eating. Like you could, you could detect gluttony, but I feel like the way sex operates in our society being like, what's just normal, healthy sex, and what's like lust and perverse? It's like it's all so melt. Like I could sort of be like, show me someone eating, and I'll tell you about their relationship to food. Show me right. an American fucking, and like I don't know, they're probably just a pervert. Like <laughs> I don't know that I. Uh, I mean, you know, to be clear, I'm not going to watch them anyway. This is a this is a hypothetical, but I you get what show. I mean. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so so I've I've caused various digressions here, but I I want to get you back. I think the bridge between some of my questions is you've you've spoken in a very illuminating way about the sort of view in the Mormon Church of the beginning of Christianity. I'm curious about um the role of of America, like how how the the tradition got here, why God would choose America as a place. I mean, my perspective has always been that like And again, this this doesn't play into my own faith, but it's like every great civilization should have a church. You know, like it seems fitting to me in some way that the new world needs to have uh, some notes in the Christian story. And so like this is this is uh, one thing that's that's compelling to me. And so I'd be curious to to hear you talk about like, um, you know, how did how did Christians get to the new world in the um, in the Mormon tradition? And then what was. Sort of uh, you know, I guess a little bit about about Joseph Smith if there's if there's something germane to say about how he fits into that. Uh, yeah, so
1: so the the where America fits is so essentially there's there's the thesis is that there's records of prophetic utterance all over the place. like there's probably, in China, somewhere, buried, something. Mm. Um, it's, these things are sort of held in reserve until people are, are ready to, like the whole story will be told when we're ready to have it told. And and so it's not necessarily that like, there's only two, like the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Uh, as a matter of fact, we also have the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. And there's, there's like, the, the idea of a closed canon is just not how we how we think about it. Um, but as for like why it was chosen, it's, it's actually kind of, so, so Paul was a Roman citizen. He spoke Greek, but he had the scriptures, right? And so he had this breadth of access to the ancient world. Like he was able to travel all over. Like essentially, Rome was the uh, the easiest way to disseminate Christ, and so basically being being chosen that way. Uh, I think I think a similar thing could be said for you know the United States government for English as the spoken language, like there's, there's this facility to, to what was going to happen um, for the spreading of the gospel. And I think that it's, I think that it's engineered for that purpose, like essentially uh, America's America, America's supremacy on the world stage was, and, and, you know, not to say that it's, that it's like righteous or whatever, because like, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had a role in God's plan and everything else. It, it, it's more to say that like God gave us the Constitution, gave us this system of laws, gave us the Protestant Reformation, gave us the King James Version of the Bible, all of these pieces so that the gospel could go forth in the last days. Basically, you needed freedom of religion, you needed popular literacy and understanding of the Bible, you needed... Um, global communication networks, like all of these pieces had to happen for the gospel to travel to every kingdom, which is what it was prophesied to do. And so there's that sense. There's like, in what sense is the United States of America prophetically significant? But if you're talking about in what sense is America significant, that's a little more interesting because the Book of Mormon basically says this land is like a chosen land. It's a, it's a, it's a place for people to come to worship God and enjoy prosperity. And like, it's, it's under, it's under greater blessings and deeper curses. Um, basically it's like, God will have a righteous people to live here. And if he doesn't, he will remove them. And, um, the, uh, The last days, basically the way that I see it, this isn't like universal, but the way that I see it is that what's happening in America right now is essentially a, a shadow or an echo of what happened in Jerusalem with Christ. It's like you had everything that you needed, you had everything given to you, you had the most abundant blessings, and you are rejecting that, and that is going to generate... the the spiritual hurricane, the cataclysmic destruction that you read about in Revelation. The light will be so intense and it will be rejected so violently. Right, it's um, sort of,
0: there's there's almost an inversion of Job where it's like this story, the American story is like a person sort of endlessly blessed with riches. And at the beginning, those blessings uh, prompt like real piety and then start sneaking in like this idea of like, well, probably I'm doing this and not God because like, it keeps happening. So like, maybe I can dispense with, uh, obedience or, or whatever, but yeah, go, go on. This is good.
1: Yeah. So, so, uh, and essentially how Christians came to be there is again, we're talking about, um, observant righteous Jews as we understood them. You know, I'm talking about, uh, People who are explicitly aware that the law of Moses is tutelary, and uh, so they obey it, but they obey it in anticipation of Christ. And um, essentially, it's it's uh, after the it's right before the destruction of Jerusalem. A prophet named Lehi is warned in a dream to leave the city before the, uh, the Babylonians destroy it. And they wander in the wilderness down the Arabian Peninsula, basically. They build a ship and they sail to the New World. And the, what's, what's interesting about that, and, and you had a lot of questions in your sort of prelim about how do we understand the Native Americans in that context... And what's, what's interesting about Joseph Smith and his approach to all this is that he really seems to have been studying it himself. Like people would ask him what a particular passage exactly meant. And he would be like, it could mean a couple things. I'm not sure what it means. Um, like he clearly treated it as something that came from not him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, so, so, as far as like the role the Native Americans play, a lot of people originally believed that, like, oh, all of the Native Americans are descendants of this family that left Jerusalem in, in, in 600 AD or BC. And um, genetics will prove that out. And uh, it didn't. And so and so now there's this question of like, well, what would actually happen if a small, group settled somewhere on the northern or southern hemisphere you know north or south america and they had a civilization that like there's some hints at like the scale of that population but like to what extent like you could view it as like they, they sort of uh quasi incestuously read independently and so all of those tens of thousands of people that are described toward the end of the book are genetic like pure um nephites is the word or you can say they started breeding with the natives fairly early on and so they sort of got lost in the ocean the genetic ocean of of uh, of the the new world and and i i Again, this is like one of those things like God can do
0: things, right? So like, if, right, God can do things, but also twenty three and Me might be a psyop to undermine the the LDS Church.
1: I mean, I mean, <laughs> the way so so what happens fairly early on is Layman gets cursed with dark skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he rebels and 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 breaks away, and his breakaway group they all get cursed with dark skin all at once, and you can read that as like the, the, the righteous group uh, obeyed the law of Moses with respect to marrying Gentiles and the Lamanites didn't. And so they interbred with the natives and became dark. Um, Or you can read it as God, you know, hit him with the, with the dark stick and, and made them dark. And what does that do to you genetically? Does it make you Asiatic? I have no idea. Like, so, so like, people want to argue about genetics, and it's like, we're talking about magic. Like, what does that even...
0: Right, and it also seems like, I mean, I'm literally too stupid and uninformed to lay this out correctly, but it's like, it is clear that in things like 23andMe, they are, like, to some extent, they're tracing back lineages in a real way, but that there's like a starting point where we are accepting that groups that we can distinguished genetically today, got to the starting point in the way we think they got there. So like, yes, they'll sort of be, you know, like, groups of people from Ireland. uh, You know, they know that they know that my family connects to this other family, but then they're encouraging you the layperson to say, so uh, project that onto the story of, of Irish history and migration into Ireland that you're familiar with. And that's the part that we don't know. I mean, I'm sure Razeev Khan or some smart person could explain uh, based on what we see where we should be suspicious of the given history and where yeah. it looks like the genes actually confirm it. I don't know enough to to know that. I just know that people smarter than me have told me like, yeah, it's not really confirming all the things people imply that it's confirming about the origin right. of, of peoples.
1: Exactly. And they have found near Eastern admixture in the new world prior to Columbus as I understand it, the, the the case they make is that that happened before they came over the land bridge, but I have no yeah. idea how they decided that. So it's, you know, again, like if someone wants to like dig into all these questions with me, I'm like, A, I'm not a genetics guy and B, it doesn't matter because we're talking about magic. Like yeah. we're talking about things that do not conform to
0: rational um, analysis. Right, it's like, once you once you take the Carl Lewis pill and accept that God created fake dinosaur bones, it's all in play.
1: Right, yeah. exactly.
0: <laughs> so do you think, one thing I'm curious about, and I don't know if you would have this uh, knowledge as like a sociological question, but to with this view of like Native peoples in the United States, I wondered if at the time of Joseph Smith, was it very out of step with broader American culture to potentially view certain native peoples as like part of your own religious tradition, or was that time in America, was there already some like a narco primitivist, like native peoples are magical stuff in the air?
1: (laughs) Uh, You know, I think to be fair, more the latter than the former, I I think, well, a lot of people hated the Indians.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: you know, cause a lot of people had been hurt and, and, um, you know, people go to war and they don't like the people they're going to war with. Um, but there was definitely, there was definitely respect and curiosity about the background of, of, of native Americans. There were other stories told about what was the genesis of the native Americans. How did they get here? Um, and, I would say um, they were probably out of step with their nearest neighbors because they were in, like, Illinois, Missouri, um, places that were still decidedly, like, on the frontier, near Indian country. Um, And so, yeah. uh, And, 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 I mean, Brigham Young has a pretty good, uh, several pretty good discourses about, the uh, the Native Americans and, and talking about because like the the meme really is not that they're magical the meme is like these are our brothers like down on their luck kind of mm-hmm. like these are our these are they've forgotten some things and we need to help them remember and like. I think at the time that was understood both in terms of like, we need to help them remember like the Beatitudes and the law of chastity. But it was also, you know, I think it was also like, we need to help them remember like to, to put clothes on and build houses. And, um, so, so it's definitely connected. Like, I, I think in, in the book of Mormon, there's several passages referred to it as a degenerate condition. Mm. Like that they are they're not living in that state because that's the primal beautiful state. Right. They're in that state because their civilization has collapsed. Which I think is actually closer to the modern historical understanding. Well, right. What's
0: what's so interesting about that is that like so I mean maybe this is just gonna be my my lib bug man showing and this is how I reroute like my own uh nascent liberal worldview. But it's like, I feel like in the past, there was a much bigger thing with like, because we can't, sustain. like, I think there were periods of history in Christendom, where a relationship between Christendom and civilization was like plausible. Whereas like, in the modern world, that's broken. So it's almost like, and I have always felt like, whether I was in China is a more mixed example, but especially in the Middle East, but in some other parts of the world, parts of Mexico, it's like those societies can be uncivilized in ways that our society is civilized. But I almost did immediately recognize this thing where I was like, oh, these are people like under the yoke of a god. And even if it's not my god, like we are degenerate in a way they are not degenerate. And I guess... I'm seeing something that just wouldn't be comparable because like I imagine what that 16 or 17 or 1800s American is thinking is like, these people are not civilized. They have some inkling of a yoke of God, but like they need to be assisted. Whereas it's like today, it's almost like how to describe this. It's like you're just walking around Egypt and you're like, I don't know how to articulate this, but there is some ingredient fundamental to civilization that is here that is not at home and despite yeah. the fact that we are in many ways more civilized and maybe even don't have some of the social pathologies that they have uh we have like a unique form of degeneracy that isn't really fully here yet or to the extent that it's here it's like brought by us or like we're we're introducing it and so i guess maybe that's yeah. it's it's hard for me to to imagine these these past scenarios, because I think what I just described is like unique to the past hundred years or something, but it's it's a strange feeling.
1: Yeah, and and to be clear, uh, the the prophets in the early church were deeply critical of the moral state of the West, mm. even in the eighteen forties. You know that it was it was definitely like we're going to go
0: build a thing that is not all of that. And what um, do you think were the main drivers of the criticism? Like what were they seeing in the West that was disturbing to them? Um, they talk
1: a lot about, they talk a lot about sexual perversion, just like a, adultery and, and fornication. Um, they talk a lot about, um, uh, greed and, uh, and brutality um, and war that these are sort of uh, these are sort of and I I don't want to say they were critiquing like necessarily like industrial capitalism but I think
0: there's some element of that like like the uh, well I I think there's something unprocessed I wonder if you agree but it's like I too take pride in the sort of frontier tradition of America, but there is something in the frontier tradition that's like man by himself tested against the world, like shorn of women, shorn of children, shorn yeah. of society that like that is in some ways like a prelude of bugman life. It's like the thing they were up against, the test, which was like the wilderness, I think was a much more rewarding and profound Test, But it was still a model for like uh, some form of alienation that like you're, you know, it's a single man against the elements. And I don't know if if that would have been something that was disturbing to more like communitarian focused religious. Well, yes.
1: Yes. So that was a huge fault line uh, with with the Missourians in particular, because the Missourians, it was it was like trappers and it was trappers and hookers. And that was. Basically, who was there, and and so for us to be like, we're gonna we're gonna build something with our families, and we're all gonna vote together. That was a big piece of it. We're gonna vote together, and you can't own slaves. And um, it was very antagonistic to that that uh, segment of of the population. And um, I do think that there's like. I think that's the way you do it right. Is is family and and an extended kin group, a clan,
0: on the frontier, right? Because I, I think this is the yeah. this is the thing where I would say it's similar to the to the right wing today, where it's like there are potentially good reasons to want uh, a man to sort of test his metal in an isolated environment, but it also can be cover for degeneracy and indulgence Cowardice. and yeah, yeah. we. I think we saw that in, you know, there's all these Westerns of like someone's mistaken for a hero, but really they were like a coward murderer and stuff like, like that's the sort of thing that can, that can happen. And that's like why women and children are important in part, you know, it's like a, they keep men honest. Um, Yeah. So I've taken a lot of your time here. We've covered a lot of ground. I guess I want to give you the opportunity as well. I think I feel like my understanding is, is, clarified a bit and this is all very interesting. I wonder if there's any things that this is like a lame NPR way to end it, but like, are there misconceptions or unknown things about the LDS fate that you wish more people knew or that like you find yourself often informing people or correcting people about? Um,
1: you know, I feel like I hit the high notes of like, of like what, what makes us different and what's maybe not understood so much. Um, it it's definitely well, the role of the family. Um, people often will ask, "How do you how do we get a taste of that? How do we how do we uh, how do we have the sort of the LDS family model rub off?" Mm. And the fact is, we we believe that that your whole purpose in this life is to become a patriarch or matriarch of a kin group and, and, and raise those children. And that, that's sort of God is, is, is teaching you to be something like himself through that experience. And that, that is essentially what heaven is like. Heaven is the glorification and the expansion of that. And so if you don't center that, if you don't, If that's not like your reason for being, then whatever is your reason for being will be the priority. Like, like you can't just be like, I want to make it a little bit of a higher priority because that's not what we're doing. We're not just like, we're not just like
0: better at this. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I think it's, I think what I, the distinction I hear you making is like, this is not the highest good on a list of goods. It is the purpose of life. Like everything else. Yeah. Is extraneous.
1: Yeah. And like, and like the, the purpose of the Because even a lot creation. of normal
0: Christians would be like, you know, if you're Leonardo da Vinci, maybe don't worry about having kids just like, you know, make beautiful art or, you know, there's, there's some concepts of that. Like there are right. conceptions of a life that could be, or even you know, just as we were discussing, like a monk or a nun, like these ways to be very holy that leave children and family life entirely out of it.
1: Right, and and for us, based, and that's I think that's part of why, uh, like the, for example, there's as many of us as there are Jews in America, but in terms of cultural influence, it's wildly different, and I think a, a, a part of that explanation is that. All of us are supposed to raise families, which means it's hard for us to get into industries that require immense commitments of time and low wages. And like, we sort of have to play the game. And that's, that's part of what animates this exit group for me is I, I want to take those guys who have those commitments and responsibilities and, and, get them to a position where they can make more of a cultural impact uh,
0: than they otherwise would be able to alone. Yeah. And- I'm, I'm sort of jealous in that. Cause I think I'm, I'm dealing with the fact that like, I think as a person, uh, I won't make any universal claim, but just me as an individual, like I'm more relationship and family oriented than career oriented, but just the community and the class I come from all the, natural momentum in my life had me like, uh, fall ass backwards into a career with pretty minimal effort or thumb on the scale from me, but not the same for, for the family part of the dimension. So I'm, I'm having to be much more, uh, intentional about that, which is okay. It's just, you know, if I could have decided the emphasis, I probably would have gone the other direction, but
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it, uh, we have we have so many guys, especially in that little like Desnat group, who rage at that. They're so like they're so frustrated that we're not creating, and um, and yeah, that's that's.
0: Well, that's I always say this creating. is like this is kind of a bit, but it's like people talk about um, for good reason, like the towns where the mill went away, and so people can't work there. But it's like I always say, like I'm the kid from the town where the mill never was where I'm just like, (laughs) I graduate high school and I'm like, so where do I marry my sweetheart and go work at the factory? And they're like, you go to college, son, you're a yuppie. I'm like, oh, I didn't want to do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I did. did, and, And, you know, things have changed at BYU recently. But like when I went there, I mean, nobody spent a lot on a wedding. And getting married when you were 22 and your wife was 19 was super normal, mm. which meant that, like, people would uh, – I mean, I, it cost me more to be the best man at my friend's wedding than it cost
0: me to do my wedding. Yeah, that's and, that's really a a sort of tragic thing because, like, I love big events like that, but I have just yeah. gotten in my mind, like, I'm going to have to figure out something with my priest – of like him letting me have a few people and, and do the search. Cause it's like, I don't have like a, my life is not built to be like, let's take three weeks and 50 grand and make right. something happen. It's like, that's not on the dock. Nobody's is nobody's <laughs> yeah. is.
1: And, 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 that's, yeah, I mean, that's a huge piece of it. And like, you know, every, I, I, you know, we had our kids in, in uh, five different congregations and, uh, you don't generally get five baby showers, by the way, you, you get like two, you mm-hmm. get like a girl baby shower and a boy baby shower. And then by the time you have your third kid, they're like, ah, you, you guys are probably taken care of, but, um, but we, in these congregations where new, nobody knew us, the women's organization just got together and threw us a baby shower. And so like, we didn't buy clothes for our kids until, until kid three. And, um. It makes a difference. All these little pieces that, uh, these, these, these community elements that make it easier to do. Um, and you know, our numbers are, have always for the last, uh, century, as long as people have been keeping track, our numbers have always been like we have a kid and a half more than everybody else. And so now that everybody else is having like a kid and a half, we're having like three kids. Um, and you know, I don't love that trend, but, uh, but you can see the impact of these structures. They do, they do make a difference. But again, I don't think those structures exist unless everybody is just
0: hella oriented around making well, that Right. It's, it's so sad. I mean, this this works fine for me, but it's just kind of weird to think about. Like, where I just moved, the church near me, it's like completely a Latin church. I think most of the people who go to it are like El Salvadorian and stuff. And my first thought was like, oh, they'll be like real parish what life. Like, unlike if these were white Catholics, where you'd right. see people at church and never again. And just like, right. I, I don't really know what to, to do about something like that. But uh, I guess for now, my solution is just to go to mass with El Salvadorians. But has you know, that been your experience? Is it is it tight? Yeah, like it's it's there's a challenge of um, like a lot of people's first language is, is Spanish. But like just the expectation among more recent catholic immigrants is that the church will be the centerpiece of like a broader social community whereas i think i mean dc might also just be a particular place but it's like going to a church in dc where uh most of the people who went to the same mass as me were were like young white and black people it's like some of the most committed young folks go to like a weekly youth group but like most people you'll just see them at mass and then That's that's that. So it's probably different like church to church. But I I have a feeling that like unless you're still in one of the sort of like ethnic white community, you know, like if your Catholic ancestors came to New York, Boston or Philadelphia and literally haven't moved more than eight blocks in 200 years, then like maybe you're white and have a real social life at your church. But uh, (laughs) besides those, it feels like the longer you've been in America as a Catholic the less of your social life is built around the church. Maybe I'm, I'm sure there are exceptions to what I just said, but it's what, and I'm the the other important factor is like, I'm a yuppie. I'm like moving to different cities, going to a mass in a new place. So it's like, I'm not embedded in the sort of community that maybe would have a better church life. So, you know, my own behavior may be implicated.
1: Yeah. I grew up in North Texas and I don't remember exactly what the activities were, but the Catholic kids all knew each other and did things together. And it was, there was, there was some social uh, weft there. Uh, And and I don't know if that's changed recently, but I I think it's, I think it still can exist. But uh, another thing is, you know, kids in school, they have this, like they're stuck together. They Hmm. get to know each other, just like the existence of public school as a, as a, a place to socialize um, makes a huge difference. I don't know if the same thing existed among the parents except insofar as they were, you know, your, your kid wants to hang out with my kid. So.
0: No. Yeah. That's probably true too. I would suspect that at the churches I'm talking about the people, the parishioners with young kids probably got to know each other and, and socialized and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, find Christ, everybody. You, you heard it here one way or the other. Uh, you got to do it. Um, Go talk to him. Yeah. So uh, Bennett, I want to thank you again. Again, people who want to uh, follow Dr. Bennett, you can do extra dead JCB on Twitter, Substack, and And uh, there's an exit group podcast. And if people want to learn about joining exit, what's the group website? Exitgroup.us. Okay. Well, thanks so much, man. I, uh, I appreciate this conversation and all your time. And uh, it was a great conversation. Thanks a lot, man.